0: I kept going, oh, no, but I, oh, I, I want to talk about that thing. <laughs> so.
1: Hey,
0: it's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. I'm Jeffrey. Welcome back for another Hang in the Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. A uh, special thanks, as always, to our supporters who throw us as little as a buck a month to help keep this thing going. Uh, if you want to jump in over there, we always appreciate it. You can go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com. And you heard a third voice. We've got a guest this week. Uh, so thanks to our guest, uh, Dr. Jeffrey A. Martin, uh, for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. This is an example of an episode where we, the coordination to uh, to get you on here was just a mess of <laughs> false starts and emails back and forth, and uh, but we kept pushing it because we're st- super excited to get you on here.
2: So
1: it has been coming for quite a while. You're <laughs> right; we've had a lot of uh, schedule snafus, and but you know my schedule's like that. It's so crazy. Yeah, Your patience is,
2: has I mean, been admirable. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> um.
1: So uh, yeah, Jeffrey.
0: So you're, uh, you know, we were running through the bio, and it was kind of it was one of those things that that uh, I, I personally sympathize with because it's one of those like when you start to add up all the multi hyphenate details, it's like now I'm I'm running off a list so long that I feel uh, ridiculous, but they're all <laughs> true, you know. Um, so good. for you, it's uh, social scientists, entrepreneur, author, speaker. You know, uh, I guess at this point, I feel like. I'll kick it to you to kind of give us, you know, some of your background and sort of your your take on what you're doing here, I guess. <laughs> Why are you talking to us? <laughs>
1: yeah, good point. Really diverse background for sure, you know, from computer science to media to entrepreneurship and investing to uh, you name it. Curate a very large space these days worldwide called Transformative Technology, which is really the intersection of technology and well-being. Started with uh, my research into sort of the highest forms of human well being and then asking how those could be engineered from a technological standpoint and how we could maybe pull people in to do that. And it from there became this broad movement around technology and well being in general, not necessarily just the highest forms, but all forms of well being. And that's, you know, got members and whatnot and groups and you name it, spread across 70 countries and hundreds and hundreds of cities and stuff at this point all around the world. Conferences happening all around the world. The main flagship conference happening in Silicon Valley and Palo Alto area, uh, which is basically the heart of Silicon Valley, uh, starting, I think, the second weekend of November this year. So very, very broad background. I lead the uh, largest project that researches what we think of as really the highest forms of human well-being. Um, which are very different from the way people might normally define or think about well-being. And been doing that for about 13 years. Came to that really because I had a tremendous run of success before that. I mean, I'd really done everything that you were supposed to do and had everything that you were supposed to have and all of that to be happy. Uh, and I wasn't unhappy, but it seemed like there were people that were a lot happier than I was. And mm-hmm. so that didn't seem fair given how much I was working. Um, And I thought, you know, I've got to figure this out because if I keep doing the same thing that I'm doing for another 10 or 20 years, you know, well, I'll probably have, you know, increased my wealth to who knows what, a couple hundred million dollars or something. Um, But realistically, I'm going to be in the same spot or worse. That doesn't make any sense. So I really changed my life. I I went back to school. At that time, I had uh, graduate degrees in management and technology and things like that. Went back and uh, studied neuroscience, psychology, cognitive science, uh, transformation, how people change. Um, got a PhD on top of my farmer master's degrees and stuff like that. And really tried to answer this question for myself because I clearly couldn't buy it. You know, I'd been through every workshop, um, I'd done everything that I could okay. over the previous 20, 25 years or so uh, to try to really you know, figure out what could make me be one of those super happy people. Uh, it didn't seem like anybody had anything to really offer me on that. So I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to have to change my life and see if I can figure this out myself. So that led to that project. Um, so I just do all kinds of stuff.
2: Very interesting uh, path that you've taken.
1: Yeah, it's been fun. It's been cool. I love the
0: extent to which, you know, it's it's sort of the the entrepreneurial aspect. You know, I love the idea that you hit a point of going, okay, well, I still don't seem to the the happiness doesn't seem to be there. And so here's the thing I'm going to do to try to solve that problem, right, and having a a proactive answer, um, which I always appreciate. I also appreciate the, uh, you know, the side of that story that's I mean, living in LA, uh, for, you know, almost 20 years now, I've seen a lot of peers ride the same sort of roller coaster. insofar as they get to the top and they go, well, I've done all this, like I'm popular, I'm I'm at Mm -hmm. least pseudo famous now. And I'm still not happy. I'm not happy. (laughs) It's like, Oh no. And I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of ways to uh, kind of follow that same story in just kind of your average person's life. Cause you know, like it's, it's easy. I think for humans to get real uh, goal oriented And you end up going okay well if i just do this if i just do this if i just do this and it's like once you've been around long enough you start seeing people that you know i mean my with my background in sports you see people that get all the way to the top and then and then they don't know what to do with themselves uh and it's a it's a you know very human uh problem i think that kind of happens on all levels like it doesn't have to be that you made it all the way to the olympics or you made it all the way to being instagram famous and that was your goal like i think even on lower levels you think well i just have a family and that'll make me happy. And then people Absolutely. get to that plateau and they're sort of It like, really is,
1: you know, it's almost like it sounds cliche, right? But it, it really is the situation where external stuff, generally speaking, just doesn't quench the internal thirst. And so, you know, there's no question it's better to have money than not have money, I think, right? Um I mean, it's a huge load off your shoulders when you don't, when that's something that you don't have to think about anymore, right? It um, doesn't have to be a level where you're thinking, okay, time for the sixth jet or something like that. Um, you know, it can be at a much simpler, lower level than that. Um, and, and the positive psychology research, the psychology research does back that up. You know, there's this popular phrase when money can't buy happiness. And, and I think at a deep, at the deepest level, that's true. Um, but if you look at the plotted curves for, you know, no money to, to money, um, happiness definitely goes up, you know, to a certain plateaued point, <laughs> right? I mean, eating out of dumpsters, not necessarily too happy, <laughs> right? right? right. Um, and then the curve sort of goes up from there, right? right? Um, but in our case, we, we really have come across something interesting over the last 13 years, really, of this research. Uh, and, and 13 years ago, I was really asking myself, who are the happiest people on earth that can be researched? And um, we narrowed it down to a few different populations, and we wound up actually having the strongest, boldest claims, and I really thought they were going to be psychopathological claims, coming from um, people who were spiritual or religious in some way, uh, and who had, who had claimed some sort of spiritual or religious attainment, right? So people like from Buddhism that claimed to be enlightened, or um, you know, people from uh, Advaita Vedanta who claim to be non-dual, or uh, we have hundreds of these terms that are cataloged. Uh, people that were sort of in a persistent state of you know having Jesus dwelling in their heart uh, from a Christian standpoint, which you might think of sort of a persistent form of mysticism, mm-hmm. though not sort of the peak extreme forms of mysticism that maybe are more popular in stories. Um, and so we just basically thought, "Well, you know, we shouldn't ignore this. People are claiming this. And so let's see what the story is here. Let's look into this with a scientific lens, psychologically and from a cognitive science standpoint and whatnot. And over the course of the last thirteen years, I really feel like we have gotten to a very interesting place with that from a from a more mainstream scientific standpoint. Now, what we've really discovered is that there is, these people are representing a core shift. They really are representing a core change. We think of it in relation to sort of a rewiring in their brain between different networks in the brain um, and just things happening differently from a neurological perspective. You know, they think of it from more of a spiritual or religious or sometimes supernatural type perspective, which is fine. I mean, it's how it shows up internally to you subjectively. It's definitely different than how it looks to us when we're measuring you with an EEG device or something. Um, But one of the fascinating things I think is that these religions, we owe them a tremendous debt because they've really been a cultural carrier across the rise and fall of empires, carrying a knowledge of this other higher form of well-being, that I think is probably one of the things that nature is experimenting mm. with for humanity uh, coming up. You know, I spend a lot of time uh, in Silicon Valley and um, I spend a lot of time with the people that are sort of at the top of Silicon Valley. It's just sort of a quirk of how my life worked out. And they spend a lot of time thinking about the impact that their technologies are having on society currently and are going to continue to have on society over the course of the next X number of years that they can project out. And one of the things that they're seeing is you know, tremendous increases in advances in AI, tremendous increases in robotics. Uh, there's a lot of concern about just exactly how many human jobs there are going to be in 50 years. Uh, things like that, you know, and whether what the economy is even going to look like, is it going to be sort of an AI based mm-hmm. economy? And then what value do humans provide to an AI based economy? And these are all topics that most people have never heard of, never thought about. Um, but at, at this level, in this particular corner of society, these are talked about and thought about and they're attempted to be planned for and whatnot and engineered for um, every day, all day. And so one of the things that comes along with that, if you think about it, is if there, if you know, if there is such a significant change over, say, the next fifty to one hundred years for humanity, um, what exactly is it that we're going to be doing? You know, if things do go to sort of a universal basic income for us, mm-hmm. um, a lot mm-hmm. of jobs, most jobs, uh, go away because they're able to be handled largely by technology. Um, you know, are we basically just going to be sitting on the couch watching whatever the modern, you know, hologram equivalent of Netflix is by that point or you know, living in some virtual reality like the Matrix or, or whatever else? And if you think about it, modern consciousness, oh current gosh. human consciousness, if you're really a philosopher, you could call it postmodern human consciousness, whatever you want to call it. But our contemporary human consciousness is really not very equipped for that. Uh, if you send someone home to just go sit on a couch today, they're probably going to be driven crazy within a very short period of time because our entire enculturation process Mm -hmm. and our psychological frameworks are primarily around, you know, being a good worker bee and contributing in some way as a worker bee to our social systems. Um, So what happens when that stops? Because there's I think some very strong cases made for the fact that it may very well be stopping. Even AI engineers themselves are probably going to be replaced by AI at some point. Right. Um, and so, you know, that might be the la- one of the last holdouts <laughs> right, of the people that are refining those systems. And so they're not even needed. Anymore. That's the
2: that's the success of any good software engineer is to get rid of their own job. Exactly. Right?
1: So, yeah, so. exactly. I've viewed that as my primary responsibility for years as a leader in various organizations or whatnot is to make myself obsolete, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that I think might be going on here is this this shift that some people, I think it's only about half a percent of the population right now, are actually experiencing. I think it really may be getting us ready for a time like that. It may be something that, the, that you know nature is kind of slipping in as one of its many tests um, for what humanity sort of can become. And it's a, it's a huge difference between the way someone normally experiences the world and how these people experiences the world. And I'm one of these people now as a result of this research. Uh, I've experienced it now for several yeah. years. I certainly didn't when I was starting off with this line of research. As I said, I thought they might be crazy. You know, I thought they might be psychopathological. Um, <laughs> and so the, the primary change is one that is around... Really, what it's like to be a human in general. And there is this, there really is this fundamental problem of the human condition. And that problem is a very deep seated sense of discontentment that all of us feel. Now, we don't think a lot about this sense of discontentment. It doesn't occur to us that it's what's driving our goals, that it's what's, you know, fueling that voice in our head. That is telling us that, you know, we just need this car or this relationship or another child or a meal at a certain place or certain degree of fame or a certain degree of money or whatever. And then finally, that will be quenched, right? What insert whatever external thing your mind has tried to convince you of over the years as being the thing that will finally be what makes you feel okay. Um, there really isn't an external thing, and it's it's ironic because in Silicon Valley I deal with a lot of you know ridiculously successful people, even you know uh, quite a few billionaires even. Uh, and I think most people would probably say, okay, well you know when you've become a billionaire, you've more or less made it. Um, but what's true for most people that I know, and I could say all of the people that I know that are like this. Um, but I want to be a little careful because I haven't certainly studied them all psychologically, but I can certainly say it's true for most. Is that, frankly, the more successful you are, the more that you've believed that internal voice in your head that said, okay, you know what? Okay, let's see. So now we've got the McLaren, uh, and that made us happy for about 37 seconds. Um, so, you know, the McLaren <laughs> didn't do it. So now we know that six houses, uh, you know, a G five fifty, a yacht, a McLaren, um, you know, a supermodel for my wife, amazingly brilliant kids, you know, one of the world's most successful companies. Now, okay, we, our mind has been able, my, you know, we've been able to rule out a lot of things that don't satisfy us deep down, and so let's see, what's the next? Oh, you know what the next thing is? It's X, right? And then they go out and get X. Um, Well, I think, you know, it's almost a curse to be super successful because the more things you get, the more you begin to just lose faith that you can ever reach a point where that fundamental sense of discontentment that is the core problem of the human condition can ever be quenched. It's kind of funny because the average person, at least, you know, they have all of these dreams, but the odds are that they're never going to achieve them. Um, And so they can go through their entire life assuming that if they ever had achieved X, Y, or Z super goal in their life, right, that it would have quenched that thirst inside them. They never get to find out that that thirst isn't quenchable from the outside. But the people who have everything, you know, have had a massive crisis of meaning for the most part, because they have gotten to find out <laughs> that there's nothing external that quenches that internal thirst. And what you're seeing, what I'm seeing in in surprising numbers um, and it's not just in the Valley, it's, it's, it's worldwide. It's in Connecticut and Manhattan. It's, it's the other places where these folks are, um, is a real turning in their lives towards, you know, okay, crap. None of this stuff that I've done for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years has done it. What in the world will, it's almost like we all, they all reached the point that I reached. Um, and it's a real point of commonality in our lives. It's a point of commonality in our friendship. Um, because in some sense, I got off the train a lot earlier than they did. And, um, and so I can sort of, you know, talk to them intelligently about this path that they're about to embark upon um, and how it really does lead to quenching that thirst. And so when you have what one of the things that, that seems to happen with this is that sense of discontentment, that fundamental sense of discontentment that lies deep down in everybody's psychology, whether they're thinking about it or not, whether they're calling it that or not? Most people aren't, you know, as prescient about their internal space um, as they could be, and so they don't even necessarily realize it. They've never even stopped to sort of realize that this thing is there. Um, but and it's by the way there in animals in general, right? I mean, it's just word animals. I mean, if you're sitting outside. And you're at a cafe mm-hmm. and you right. throw a crumb to a bird, you know, what does the bird do? Does it like pack at the crumb and savor the crumb. And it's like, oh my God, this crumb, it's like rolling its head back with its eyes closed, just immersed in the crumb. <laughs> I mean, of course it doesn't do that, right? It pecks at the crumb and then it looks around for what's about to kill it. <laughs> right? And then when it's convinced that it's safe to take another peck at the crumb, it pecks at the crumb again and then starts <laughs> looking around for what's about to kill it again. right? So all animals have this fundamental sense just as, a, as an act of survival That things might not be okay in this moment. And it's a really good idea to look around and see what might be okay in this moment, right? Uh, And and we're, we're, you know, our systems, our nervous system just sort of takes that to the human extreme like it has so many other things. And so, what happens with this shift is you go from that fundamental sense of discontentment to a fundamental sense that things are okay. And it's very paradoxical because you might be going through you know, a divorce. I mean, your life might be falling apart on the surface, and you can have all of these emotions around that, depending upon where you're at in this process. Um, and yet, if you stop and you look down deep in your psychology below sort of that surface turmoil, somehow there's the sense that things are fundamentally okay, even though logically that makes absolutely no sense to you. Uh, in the moment. And so it can even be a, in an extreme case, it can be very paradoxical, but nonetheless, it's still there. It's this kind of this unshakable sense of what a friend of mine at Yale calls fundamental okayness. Uh, and if you think about it, if the robots take all the jobs and you have to go sit in your house tomorrow and do nothing, um, or, you know, maybe make <laughs> art or, you know, whatever humans would point. do that is still uniquely human. Um, that fundamental sense of okayness is a pretty important thing to have. Well, I think
0: I think the, the, the crazy thing that aligns with what we talk about on the podcast really often is this idea of like, you know, uh trying to back up all the sort of things that converge into the the story where we are right now is, is you know, we have all these different sort of call it spirituality or religion, philosophy, like all these different sort of um you know, squishier ways of dealing with this stuff where humans have been talking to one another about this stuff for thousands of years, and then and then we have this kind of more concrete avenue of science and technology that is increasingly pushing us toward. It's like, you know, we, we try to solve these problems. We build tools. We, you know, we run tests. We come up with answers. And even as we try to make the squishy more concrete, we're ending up asking the same question like, uh, what does it mean to be human? well it means you know uh, adherence to this religion and toiling in the fields <laughs> and that's happiness and so like we do that and we go oh this field stuff sucks <laughs> though so like let's make a device to get the field thing out of there because yeah. that's making me unhappy and and like and you keep chasing that thread and chasing it and chasing it and now we're like okay well we got rid of all that stuff uh okay what does it mean to be <laughs> like we're, we're back to that what does it mean to be human um idea and and it's you know it's so interesting to me i think with my own sort of exploration because you know when you talk about um sort of commonality and sort of this idea of like oh well when did you hop on the train of realizing here's here's how it it actually works that it's this sort of internal process versus this external thing and i i personally made whatever progress i've made on that journey because of religious studies and so like when people (laughs) used to ask me about <laughs> um, you know religion. Personally, I always used to say, "Well, you know, I was raised right uh, uh, yeah, a Christian, uh, but then I became a philosopher." And it's it's pretty hard to look back from that because because what it really turns into is you start you start studying all of these different stories, right. and you start to look at all the religions, and you go, "Well, that's a story," and this is a story, and here's another story, and here's another version of that story, and then here's a story that completely has nothing to do with religious imagery. It's just You know, Socrates asking questions and, you know, and you end up starting to see the commonalities in all of those stories. And then you start going, okay, well, they all seem to overlap with these similar points. And so, like, maybe that's the whole thing. And then the thing I kept thinking uh, while you were talking about that on on the sort of religious front is the thing that pushed me away from my my own upbringing in the Christian space is like, I struggle with religions where uh, they affirm (laughs) the discontent feeling that you're talking about. Like I don't like the idea of, Hey, here's a story about what it all means, except that story still includes that there is no answer and you just have to be generally Mm -hmm. discontent, except the discontentments. Like Mm -hmm. it's this weird, not external but still, sort of external because you're like, mm-hmm. you know, original sin, and we're all tainted, and and like you know, ideas like that that start to start to work their way into the story. This um,
2: this seems like a really interesting time to be studying this particular topic, right? What kind of, I mean, in a way, you're you're studying the ultimate question, right? What is the point? Of what are we doing here? But up until relatively recently, uh, and you could argue that's tens of years or hundreds of years, whatever. Relatively recent in the, in the concept of the world and life in the universe, we've life has existed in a in a world of mostly scarcity, and so now it seems, even to people who haven't studied the depths of philosophy and economics and how the world works, I think it's becoming apparent to people that uh, we a lot of human beings have everything that we really need to essentially. Be happy (laughs) to to exist and have have a family and live a full full fulfilled life and all of the fears and not all of but many of the fears and concerns and frustrations and anxiety that we feel all day seems like when you look under the covers it seems like it's kind of our brain making that stuff up because the part that's supposed to worry about getting eaten never actually has to worry about that anymore and so we've we've invented A bunch of stuff and it's been functional for a long time right we we needed people working on farms to make food for the population and people defending our towns and uh but maybe that's coming to an end and we don't need that anymore and so it's it's interesting right now because it feels like we're whether this is the universe forcing this on us or whether it's us accomplishing it we're being forced to figure out the answer to what is the point? And what's
1: fascinating, I think, about this is that when you transition to this other form of well-being, the, what I would say is, you know, sort of, it really feels like, in a way, a later evolution of what human consciousness can be, a modernizing, if you will, of human consciousness, right? This is exactly what mm-hmm. you say. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm today, um, sitting in a hotel room in San Diego, California. Um, and you know, realistically I'm safe, right? Like I'm not worried about a gunman bursting into my room. I'm not worried about a wild animal tearing my arm off. I'm not worried about starving. I'm not worried about any of the things that these parts of our nervous system evolved to get us to deal with on a moment-to-moment basis. Mm. Um, if anything, I'm trying to, you know, eat less dessert <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> the opposite. Run around a little <laughs> more. With all of this, right,
2: right. right. Well,
0: as you were saying that, I was thinking like, you know, I I still, I go and do deliberately dangerous things as a calming mechanism for that, for that part of my brain. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to go on a trail run where there's a, you know, one in a hundred chance I encounter a mountain lion. And it's like, it's not really dangerous, but I, but I'm tricking myself into, you know, and then there's people that escalate that even further. I'm going to jump out of a plane. It's like, okay, now we're up to one in 10. Your parachute doesn't open. But like still
1: eh, mostly safe. Well, and a lot of people do that for um, like, you know, I a couple of friends of mine, uh, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler wrote a book called Stealing Fire that's become pretty popular, Um, but they're really into flow, you know, which I know has been a topic for you guys. Um, And a lot of people are doing Mm -hmm. extreme sports and or non sports, you know, jumping off a bridge with a rubber band tied to your ankle. Uh, or whatever, right? I'm not sure we could really call that a sport activity, uh, like a dangerous <laughs> hobby of some kind, right? Um, so that they can quiet that sort of narrative nagging part of their mind. And, you know, the sort of one of the key mm. characteristics of a flow state is that, is that that part of your mind shuts up for a while and you get to experience such a degree of peace. Right. When those parts of you are turned off such that, you know, people are willing to hurl themselves off cliffs and stuff for just a momentary experience of it. (laughs) And, you know, what what I found in this research population is people who experience that all the time. Um, I mean, imagine not having to throw yourself off a cliff. You know, and just basically living from that moment to moment in your life, <laughs> and the the difference that it right. makes in the quality of your life. I remember there was there's a group down here called uh, um, ABM, and they did some research along with some folks uh, uh, in Albuquerque into brain stimulation in San Diego um, with uh, marine basic training, which is here uh, near here. And they basically were zapping people's brains with uh, DC current, and it was having a profound effect on learning. It had like a thirty percent—I want to say that could be a little off, but somewhere between a 30, 20 and thirty percent increase in terms of how quickly new marine recruits learn to shoot. Uh, you know, arguably one of their most important skills. Um, so. There was this reporter years ago (laughs) who became interested in this and came here and got zapped and, you know, did all of that. Um, And what she noted was quite interesting. She said, you know, I definitely got the learning effect, uh, but I got it for a surprising reason. I got it because my inner critic quieted down and was not there while I was trying to learn whatever it is they had her learning. I don't know if they had her learning how to shoot or what they had her learning how to do. Um, I don't remember that part, but um, she's like, you know, ordinarily when I'm learning something, there's, she's like, I never realized it before, but there's so much self doubt mixed in with that process that it delays the learning of it. And with this technology it essentially quieted down that Hmm what we would call our mind, right? our the normal shattering sort of internal stream of consciousness mind mm-hmm. uh, that has all of those <laughs> doubts and all of those negative thoughts and, you know, whatever else. And she was just able to learn the task much more rapidly. And so, you know, there are some technological things like this that have come along right. that produce this at least in temporary ways um, that are quite powerful. Uh, one thing that I would say about, um, things like a sense of purpose or you know when you have this shift and you, you things seem fine the existential questions vanish and so it's not a situation where suddenly you understand the truth of the universe hmm. but you really wonder like in my case I had I don't know a you know, 35 year existential crisis or something before that transition. I don't know how I would say it, right? Uh, I mean, I was a Christian when I was young. I was a very religious, uh, right wing Christian. When I was young, my mom was, uh, had a Christian missionary TV show. Uh, my uncles like ran, you know, graduate Bible education, you know, graduate Christian education hmm. programs and were theology professors and stuff like that. Um, and so, One day, uh, when I was around 16, I had that belief system rug yanked out from underneath me. And I think it's actually a miracle I didn't kill myself. Um, Really, it was a friend, uh, an older friend who worked at the same, at that time, I was already working in television, in part because of my mom. I was just, you know, I followed her down to a TV studio and make a long story short, sort of the local chief engineer from NBC. Um, was kind of a volunteer chief engineer down there because in his real job at NBC, he couldn't touch any of the equipment anymore because he wasn't a union engineer. He was in management, um, and you know, it's all unionized. Um, and so that's where he went to get his technology fix. Right. Um, and that basically led to an early career for me, um, in television. Um, but you know, but I had this. So I, the other maintenance engineer down there, uh, who was an equally famous guy that was that had built some of the first broadcast trucks and stuff. He really, he really saved my life. He really, unquestionably, saved my life because that wow. you know you can't just have that deeply embedded, embedded a belief, belief system ripped out from underneath you, um, and mm-hmm. have that and come through that okay. Uh, but on the other side of it, I didn't have a, a religious belief system, um, and so I spent at least a decade, going through every other religion, uh, spiritual system, philosophy, you name it, looking for something that I could believe. Um, and I never found anything. I never found anything that I felt produced in their followers what it said they it would be produced by that system, which was basically my benchmark. Uh, so then my life became about, I thought, well, what is it what does it come down to? It comes down to quality of life in the moment right? Your moment to moment quality of life experience. So I started Mm -hmm. to try to optimize for that. Um, but of course in all of the ways that everybody does, um, that never really get at that deep internal thing. Um, so throughout all of that time and until, um, well, I don't know, until I was probably 40 or so, um, I had really a profound existential, um, internal crisis going on. Uh, I was busy, busy building companies, busy, you know, whatever, doing sports broadcasts, busy whatever I was doing during whatever time in my life. Um, But nonetheless, this was always sitting there in the background. And one of the things that is maybe most profound about this shift is that if you wind up as one of those people who have some sort of really deep existential, you know, angst, um, this just makes it go away. It doesn't like provide answers that resolve it in some way. It's like when the shift happens, you just realize it's it's there's just it just doesn't matter. You don't think about it again. You don't want to think about it again. You know, if people want to sit around and philosophize, you're like, well. I'm leaving this conversation because this is a monumental waste of time. Um, (laughs) It's, it's really quite a fascinating change. You know, there's so many people who are questing after meaning. What's the meaning of my life? Uh, I haven't thought once about meaning since the moment of that transition. Um, So meaning purpose, the existential questions of life. It seems like these are things that are in some way sort of, neurotic, psychopathological parts of the other way that your brain can be wired, like the traditional way that your brain can be wired. And you're just literally relieved of them. Uh, And it's amazing. So are we,
2: can you, well, let me share a little, uh, my question here now is to kind of, what is it that you're talking about? What are you, and maybe the answer is, is, hard to describe, right? You've, you've used the term flow or we've used the term flow state. I think you kind of, uh, gave us the nod on that as, as, as a term for it potentially, um, this clarity of mind or this freedom from, uh, other voices in your consciousness. But, um, so I want to share an experience with you and kind of see where it fits with this and kind of try to unravel where, where it is we're talking about. Um, so when I started doing yoga, uh, five or six years ago, uh, I I started doing it just because it was an inter- a yoga studio open down the street. I'd heard about it. It sounded fun. Uh, I thought I'd check it out. And from the very first time I did it, uh, I realized that there was something... Uh, trying to choose the right word. I, I want to say transcendent. There's something different about it from anything else I'd ever done. Uh, and I had heard about meditation. I'd read about meditation. I'd tried a little bit at home and stuff like that. But this all of a sudden was—I thought I was going into a fitness class, and it turned out to be—it just—it opened something else up, right? It gave me a clarity of mind that uh, I've chased deeper and 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 realized uh, is different than something I'd ever experienced before, and it opened my mind to, uh, I guess, meditation. I guess freedom from my consciousness. and what I realized pretty quickly after getting into yoga for a little bit and experiencing uh, some of the effects of that in, in a psychological sense or a spiritual sense was that I get that same exact experience mm-hmm. from a lot of my hobbies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I specifically I get it when I play music. I, I, and, and you hear that from people about music a lot, right The music is coming through me from the universe. It's not me when I get into the state. I get it from that. <clears throat> I get it from uh, engineering projects sometimes, whether they're work or hobby projects, when I'm really engaged in something and I'm just, I'm studying it and researching and building and writing software or building a little machine. I'm just kind of lost in the magic of it. And there's a, there's something I could almost mm-hmm. say that I'm not doing it anymore. I'm just the vehicle for it. And I'm curious if if that's touching on a little bit of, the feeling or the experience of of what you've been uh, researching and studying.
1: Yeah, it does. And the, if you think about flow, the difference between flow and what we study is persistence. So flow is mm-hmm. a temporary state of this, and okay. one of the classi- one of the classifications from um, Csikszentmihalyi, who basically defined flow from an academic research standpoint. Uh, is it's got some sort of goal orientation associated with it, right? Like everything you mm-hmm. mentioned there had goals sort of associated totally. with it. Um, the difference between that and the persistent form of it is that the persistent form of it doesn't have a goal. You know, I mean, as you're just sort of sitting in a hotel lobby, you know, <laughs> doing nothing, there's no real goal there. Um And yet you still have the benefits that you can experience from that flow state. Um, You still have, you know, your your tremendous sense of peace instead of that, you know, instead of your foundation being discontentment, your foundation is a sense of peace and well-being. Um, Even Hmm. in situations when there might be higher level emotional turmoil because of something extreme happening, you know, whether you had somebody that you love die or your career come to an end unexpectedly, or you're getting, you know, your spouse came to you and said, I'm leaving you and I'm taking everything or, you know, whatever you can imagine as a catastrophe right. in your life. Um, even in those circumstances, the foundation is still peace. And the, you know, the brain is, the brain is, is basically built up in layers over evolution. Um, and so, The degree to which you can get a very low level of it operating in a peaceful rather than a discontent way that basically ripples through uh the layers that sit above that and the magnified impact that it has on your moment to moment well-being really just can't be imagined it's just it's phenomenal that's a really
2: great way to describe that i I really liked how you just said that so it kind of sounds like it's not so flow state doesn't sound like it's actually the right descriptor. Flow state is just a, a, an experience that people have that happens to include the silencing or the peacefulness or the the relaxation of these different layers of our brain and it uh, from a it, to make it sound sterile, I guess, in, in a way, which uh, is, is my my voice is putting judgment on my comments. Right. But um, that you go down down through the layers of our evolved brain to the the core of whatever that is, right? Maybe that's our brain stem where things first started coordinating in our bodies. If you calm that, you calm your nervous system, you calm your limbic system, you you ultimately have these layered effects that uh, kind of turn everything off. You reach a place where, there's there's some sort of silence. Something's silent. Something's quiet. Something's n- not on, or maybe it's on and it never was on before. What's
1: what are the yeah, words? Yeah, you know. I'm the, for so I'm curious. One way to think about this, uh, the the evidence, the, neuro, the current neuroscience evidence, and of course, scientific evidence can change at any time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so it's possible that by the time somebody hears this podcast. Uh, This will be completely disproven, Hmm. but the way the evidence looks today is um, we think a lot about networks in the brain and all the networks in the brain is different regions in your brain that some way work together. Um, And Mm -hmm. so, you know, if you can think, and they might be in very different spots in the brain, but somehow they all light up together or they all go quiet together at the same time, right? It's a good way of thinking about it. So there's a couple of big ones, um, and then there's all kinds of other ones and subnetworks of the big ones and you name it. Uh, but there's a couple of big ones, and one of the big ones is very – it's maybe the only thing in neuroscience that's actually well-named, uh, even though it's, got, it's also got a bunch of names and whatnot. But, but one of the names, at least you can understand what it does, and it's called the task network. And basically when you're doing a task, that network is, is active. And there's a second network, big network, um, called the default network. Uh, And the default network was discovered um, in the early 2000s um, in uh, St. Louis. And basically, the researchers just thought to themselves, you know, we've got an awful lot of fMRI data of people just laying around in scanners waiting Mm -hmm. for experiments to begin. Why don't we look at that and see what's happening in their brain? Uh, Kind of a neat idea, right? Uh, And so what they found was this Mm -hmm. network of regions in the brain that seem to be active when you're just sort of not doing anything. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the default network is highly associated with your sense of self, um, and you know, in association with that. Uh, that little voice in your head and, you know, all of that, right? So you can think of sort of when your default network is sort of maxed out, your sense of you and being you and, you know, what it feels like to be you and all your neuroses and all the good points and all the bad points and whatever else, it's all maxed out, right? Um, (laughs) These networks, when one goes up, one goes down in the ordinary person. And so the more you're focusing on a task, the more you're minimizing the default network. And the more you're minimizing the default network, the more you're minimizing all those different components of the default network, including your sense of self, which is why in a flow state, it feels right. like you lose your sense of self. You know, People talk about just merging with the task, Totally. you know, and there isn't this independent you anymore, analyzing it and thinking about it and getting in the way of it or whatever. You're just flowing with the task, right? It's where the term flow even comes from. Um, Yep. And then when, you know, conversely, it's uh, hard to be focused on a task when you're maxing out thinking about yourself and, you know, whatever else, right? I mean, if I, if I tell you to think about yourself, of course, right. you're sort of also doing a task. So that's not necessarily <laughs> the best example. But when it's organically happening, right? Um, and so... That's, that's a funny paradox. One of the things that happens <laughs> right. in the persistent form of this is this was first uh, picked up on by uh, Zoran Yusipovic at NYU who did some just truly groundbreaking neuroscience research on this stuff. um, You get a rewiring, essentially, between the task and default networks. Uh, They cooperate in ways that they didn't cooperate before. They exchange information in ways that they don't exchange information for ordinary people. Hmm. And one of the ways that that shows up is that they are less contra-activated. And so you have less of a swing between them in terms of one being Mm -hmm. activated and one not being activated. Um, And so that's a profound change in brain function around all of this. And what seems to result from Mm that, and we, you know, there's, it's been broken out these days more into the sub networks that relate to the specific things. And if you I mean, if you're a brain scientist and you're up on the literature, you can pretty much see what's going on Mm -hmm. in the brain based on people's subjective reports and whatnot these days. Um, but that's a good way of thinking about this. It's a, it's, a, it's a profound change in terms of how your brain is wiring. It seems to me to be an upgrade to something that is much more in line right. with our modern lifestyles and our modern living. Because as you say, you know the, even poor people in America are probably living better than kings and queens right. were 300 years ago. Um, and yet we don't appreciate uh-huh. that for some reason, right. <laughs> you know, we didn't have to take over a country to have that lifestyle.
2: Wow. What an interesting description, uh, bringing those two networks into play. And then it, it seems so, uh, it seems so, uh, obvious to me that those, that, that seems like a very, a very good description of what's going on inside my own head in these experiences. So this is, uh, it sounds like this is kind of the cutting edge of neuroscience at the moment and are these task networks I'm here looking at the wikipedia page looking at visual representations I'm assuming this is actual real quantitative data that we're starting to be able to capture uh measuring the brain right so we're physically yeah. seeing these networks coming on and coming online and going offline as as people's tasks yeah, are changing yeah absolutely it's
1: been measured with uh wow with fmri eeg meg all of the all of the things that you'd want to measure it with if you were a brain scientist these days. Very
2: cool. I can't wait till we have desktop fMRI's. I, I really want to do, do some of my own exploration.
1: <laughs> well, oh, we're yeah. waiting for Mary Lou Jepsen's uh, project to succeed for that, right? With <laughs> her uh, with her desktop equivalent of a of an MRI for all of us.
2: Oh, is that really a project? Is it on Kickstarter? <laughs>
1: um, no, it's not on Kickstarter. But you can uh, you can check her out. She's that uh, we've. Uh, you know what? I was going to say, we've had her speak at the TransTech <laughs> conference, mm-hmm. but she asked us not to make that video available. But you can see other videos if you just What's search for Mary Lou Jepsen. Mary Lou Jepsen.
0: I think the coolest, so so the thing I was thinking as you were talking about that is it relates to um, uh, something we were talking about earlier in the conversation, just sort of the idea of nature as an entity that's sort of like, you know, there's a way to talk about it where we sort of say, well, you know, it, it's there's this force at play that like, sometimes when you want to say nature, it's, it's easy to say, well, oh, that's like wilderness and the weather and whatever. But, but really like a step past that is the extent to which we're just animals. And we're part of this whole sort of evolution of nature and life and, and kind of whatever you want to call it. And, and I frequently talk about technology in that way. And the idea of like, it's easy to conflate the notion of, um, technology with, uh, gadgets and tools and stuff like that the the material things we get to play with because of technology but really i mean it's it's like it's totally. right in the name it's enology it's it's the study of technique and the sort of improvement of how we do stuff and technology itself is an emergent property of the progression of whatever nature's got going on that we maybe can't possibly understand and then it intersects with what we were just talking about with, you know, it, it, the idea of sort of what's the next evolution or what's the next upgrade. And we're at this really weird place where like we really can materially measure what's going on in these brain systems. And we can say, okay, this one network doesn't serve us in the same way anymore because, uh, you know, I'm not being right. The totally. threat of a tiger jumping on me at this moment right. is considerably diminished, uh, <laughs> from, from where it was 300 years ago. Uh, but the idea that like it, it, the, the reason I bring up sort of technology as, as almost an emergent property is because it's easy to look at it and say, well, we are manipulating it now. So I, you know, you can go places like we're God with it, right? And and it starts to be this sort of strange part of the conversation. But like it it you know the idea of looking at the brain and saying, okay, we can measure these things, and we can start to you know actively measure our efforts to rewire these networks. Like part of it's a weird conversation because it's get <laughs> it gets that place where it almost forces you to acknowledge that the brain is just sort of like this mechanical chemical computer. That's just (laughs) squishier than the computers (laughs) we're all standing in front of right now. (laughs) But, but also it, it, you know, it, it there's an aspect of we can measure it. We can look at what's happening in these networks. We can quantify the network in your brain shifting, but then the answer to how you do that is still like, certainly their answers like, you know, in the mm-hmm. Neuralink presentations about brain stimulation and things we can do with, mm-hmm. uh, in incoming signals. But then there's another thing that you've, uh, talked about before, you know, just this idea of like, well, can we facilitate a more precise mm-hmm. version exactly. of the old mm-hmm. tools? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, call that what you want, prayer, meditation, yoga, flow states, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so I think that, that piece is really interesting. Like I've always, you know, as a, as a, I have my own sort of meditation practice and the idea of, I've always felt like, okay, well I'm doing this thing. And I do sort of, I I see this particular benefit, but also it's very scattershot, uh, in so far as, you know, sometimes it's working, sometimes it's not. It's easy to lose it because it's not working. And I'm always kind of in that space of, you know, like I'm constantly watching the technological developments in the space of, <laughs> like, I, I wish I had a hat I could put on, <laughs> that right. would, you know, that would like chirp at me when I'm in the right space, training the right networks, and that would stop chirping when I'm not. And I, I know we're close right. to those things existing.
2: Right. Well, this, you're um, touching, I think, on what I, what I, personally experience and see as one of the biggest challenges right now with health and well-being right is that our understanding and kind of our theorized uh, understanding of what's good for us in a lot of ways right nutrition mindfulness physical activity it's beyond the capabilities of us to actually give everyone real true feedback and so we all are like, everyone's aware that there are better things we can be doing. There are ways to optimize everything, but we don't quite have the data for a day-to-day life to really optimize everything as much as we know we're all on the cusp of. So there's almost, there's like an anxiety behind when will we know more so that we can do things better. Um, And I'm curious, uh, Jeffrey, uh, what, what is the application of your research? What are what are you uh, working on with people? What is enabling this? How are you measuring it and and providing it as as a a, a means to uh,
1: do this rewiring? The core part of that research is basically done at this point and really ended um, at the end of 2018. But we mm-hmm. what we did was uh, the first phase of it was really just trying to get our arms around it. Um, with over a 1,000 people uh, who claim to experience it around the world. And then, um, you know, there's only, there's only so long that, from a research standpoint, you're going to be okay with post-hoc data. And so, obviously, the day comes and you think to yourself, how can I get pre- and post-data on this so that I can actually see mm-hmm. what's changing, measure, get some better data on the change? Um, and so we, I thought for sure that um, we would be able to use brain stimulation or neurofeedback technologies, but um, people like Zoran's work, uh, Judd Brewer's work, other people's work in fMRI in those early days of 2009, 2010, say, um, came back with these very deep regions of interest in the brain. Um, and there was really no, I mean, you could... You know, there was real-time fMRI work that was done by people like Judd and others um, to show, you know, that if you got people to conscious, to A, show people, show that people could consciously modulate those areas of their brain, because nobody had ever tried to do something, you know, these deep structures before. Um, Mm. Neurofeedback people deal with very simple technologies by comparison, really, um, in their clinics and stuff, uh, just from the surface of the brain and then things like that, and we're talking about structures that mm-hmm. that are really too deep for them to meaningfully get at. Um, right. And so it, it took, you know, some serious fMRI researchers to verify. Okay, well, it turns out these can be consciously manipulated, um, but there was really no way to envision envision uh, an inexpensive way to do that from a research standpoint, or or that path leading to a democratized version of it at some point. And so um, we went through all of the brain stimulation technologies that were available back in the day and just couldn't get a clean hit in those ways. We couldn't use the neurofeedback technologies except for real-time fMRI, but those were very rare scanners at the time. It was, it was software for scanners. Any fMRI scanner can really mm. do it, but it was the software that was rare and the it just took a lot of technical expertise. And unfortunately, you know, Judd was at Yale Med at the time. And so they had that capability. And so did some of our other partners. They were at equally prestigious institutions. Um, so one of the things that we did was we, we wound up creating a protocol that had about a 70% success rate in transitioning people, um, which is wow. an astonishing success rate if you know anything about this area. Um, hmm. By really just looking at a line in an entry survey that we used for people that were coming into the first phase of it and that line asked people what worked for you now i didn't actually hmm. think that they would be able to accurately report what worked for them and so i didn't analyze that line earlier we collected an enormous amount of data on those people we still have data that we haven't analyzed hmm. um, but yeah, I just assumed we would get to a technological solution for this and that we would do it faster than we right. have. And so I wouldn't even need that the answer to that question necessarily. But it's one of those things that we asked it for the hell of it. Um, and, you know, you do that a lot in research because you just never know what you're going to need. Um, and that one turned out to be very useful. And what we learned from that was that, um, of course, a lot of these religious and spiritual systems and, frankly, moving into the modern realm of cognitive science and psychology and philosophy, other things, not just these religious and spiritual systems, um, have created these tools and techniques that are supposed to help people shift. Our data suggests that these were quite successful at different points in their history, but have become considerably less successful for, you know, modern people or people that are outside of the region of the world that they sort of work better in or, you know, whatever else. Um, Hmm. And so they weren't anything that in, 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 and of themselves, they weren't anything that we could really use because we just would have gone broke uh, from a research standpoint (laughs) from the low number of people that would have transitioned. But what we were able to do is sort of pull the heart out of all of this stuff and, um, or the core is another way of thinking about it. and, we're able to combine a bunch of these um, techniques. And what that taught us was that it's mostly about people finding the right fit for them. Mm -hmm. And so even if you think about like traditional meditation techniques and stuff, you know, there are uh, techniques like mantra mantra stuff, which is, you know, you're repeating a Mm -hmm. word or a phrase, sometimes silently, sometimes out loud. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's all kinds of different ways to do mantra stuff and mantras show up everywhere all around the world and all sorts of different spiritual and religious traditions and whatever else. It's clearly like a cognitive hack that people have, Mm -hmm. you know, discovered all over the place. Right. And there's modern fMRI research on mantras that shows that it sort of quiets the brain, uh, certain forms of it quiet the brain in very effective ways more than others. Um, and so, you know, this, these are just tools and techniques basically that people that were the best that people could come up with back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we learned is that if you can find the right fit among these older tools, you can make very rapid progress towards a persistent shift to this. We don't even think it should take mm. a week. Uh, we think that within a week, if you found the right method, within a week, you can make the shift. Wow. Um, and so, but it's a question of finding that right fit. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So we put together a research protocol called that we called the finders course, and we put it in the form of a class that people could take anywhere um, mm-hmm. so that we could get a very diverse participant population, not just, you know, a bunch of undergraduate students at a, at a university, which <laughs> is the normal you know, the normal way <laughs> research is done. Right. Uh, and all then right. we all pretend that those studies are in some way extrapolatable to the rest of us. Um, in reality, this protocol had a profound impact, uh, and it's had a profound impact on about a thousand people all around the world at this point. So we still make it available as a class. People can go to finderscourse.com. They can actually take it at this point if they want. We're still collecting some data on it. Mm-hmm. We don't need any more core data, um, but we're collecting data uh, to use with artificial intelligence. Now we think that if we can get to about ten thousand samples of people, it'll be a sufficient learning corpus mm-hmm. that we can feed it into, you know, deep learning or machine learning or something um, and basically, um, see what additional insights it can provide us. Um, we've got all kinds of our other research results published and you can see the the massive impact that it has on people's psychology. People can go to nonsymbolic.org, look at the publication page. There's all sorts of, um, there's all sorts of videos of me giving academic talks and, and stuff like that. So, uh, and the re- the word non-symbolic comes from our academic phrase for this, which is persistent non-symbolic consciousness or persistent non-symbolic experience, depending upon the era of our research. Um, so and now publicly, we mostly just call it fundamental well-being because that's what it feels like. It feels like there's been this fundamental mm. change in your mm-hmm. well-being. Uh, so since then, we've continued to work on the technology stuff. Like we spent the last year um, experimenting with transcranial ultrasound, which is a new technology that we'd been waiting to come online for about five years. Um, and so we put a very expensive, about a million dollar project in Silicon Valley and um, pulled in some of the best people around that and tried to basically see if we could just zap people's brains into this. Um, hmm. And we had some good success with that. We, uh, I'd say probably about a third of people that we tried it on experienced nothing. A third of people experienced something and a third of people, you know, (laughs) would experience a profound shift of some kind. And so Hmm. that technology is a ways away from being reliable. Um, But for the first time I can say, you know, if you would have, if you would have interviewed me a year ago and said, are there any technologies that you know of that shift people into this? I would have had to say, no, you know, we've looked at everything, everything that I know about, which I'd like to think has got to be just about everything out there, especially given that we sit at the middle of the mm-hmm. space around transformative technology and you know technology and well-being and stuff. I mean, like the entire world flows through our fingertips. Um, right. So, uh, but nothing really until this um, technology. And so, um, I'm actually in San Diego to meet with a neuroscientist down here. Uh, who's one of the world's leading computational neuroscientists and has a very important platform that I think that we can start to sort of begin the next phase of this research. And it's going to be years. I mean, you're not going to have a headset on your head anytime soon for this. It's going to be a long time uh, before this works out, you know. Um, (laughs) But at least we now know it's possible we can now move it, We continue moving it sort of in the right direction uh, and all of that. And so I do think there will be a day um, when it will be a button Um, it's probably still years away. Um, but that's going to be a profound moment for humanity.
2: So I, I, I love all the, I love all these descriptions. It's interesting. It's a lot of the stuff you're saying is drawing, uh, some really neat parallels to the, uh, yoga therapy program that my wife went through. Uh, she graduated from that program from a school called soul of yoga in, uh, in Encinitas. And, uh, the, the governing body Mm -hmm. is IAYT, um, and the international association Mm -hmm. of yoga therapists and the, uh, kind of the, the concept, right. Is, is they've captured all of these, uh, historic, uh, features and, uh, concept of mantras and all all these things that humanity has been doing for thousands of years. And they're trying to apply it in a very functional therapeutic way, kind of around the 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 traditional teachings of yoga but with modern science layered on top and so a lot of this same kind of stuff is the same a lot of the things you're talking about the same kind of things my my wife has really been experimenting with and and learning how to use in settings with uh clients and uh i'm wondering so the the concept uh, i suppose one could put the term enlightenment on top of all of this right there's Uh, you could put flow state whatever we've used a bunch of different words and I'm curious what being a researcher here and someone who is experiencing having these experiences and living in a in a inside of a mind (laughs) that has shifted Mm -hmm. has changed what do you see as like the future of this what is the this kind of counter to the concept but what's the what's the goal right because it sounds like in a way, it's hard to differentiate the mind as like a hardware or a software device. It's kind of both things at once, I think. But we're we're rewiring it. We're rewriting the software. We're rebuilding hardware, whatever you want to call it. Is this the first of, of many layers of changes that you suspect will have in our brains? Is there is there a direction it's headed? Is there a purpose to it? Is this just something unique you've discovered that's like the first step on the path
1: yeah it really is uh once you have a transition to this there's a whole process that unfolds in terms of you know how your brain rewires from there um and so Mm -hmm. it really does i think become a life our indicate every indication from our data is that it becomes a lifelong process of um sort Mm -hmm. of your Brain going in a different direction, you know. Your everybody right now, their brain is going in a certain direction, right? I mean, everybody's learning, changing, growing, whatever else. Like your brain just does that, right? Right now, for most people, it's doing that in that sort of traditional, old school, animal kind of way, right? Um, mm-hmm. The brain does that in this case as well. Um, once there's been sort of this you know, rewiring into this direction, um, it continues to deepen, progress, refine, um, as far as I can tell from our research, you know, for as long as someone is alive. Um, so really the transition to it is just the beginning of a process that unfolds. And we've done a lot of work on 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 how that unfolds in different ways. Uh, I just put out a book at the end of March. Uh, it was 10 years in the making around our research. It's called The Finders. People can get it more or less anywhere. Um, so that covers a lot of this type of uh, material. And let me say something about the word enlightenment and non-duality and stuff like that. You know, um, Oftentimes, so first of all, it's, it's hard to know what, let's just call them the ancients. <laughs> Right. What, um, meant by a lot of these terms. Um, so one of the things that this path of mine has led to is me interfacing with a lot of like the world's leading religious scholars of which I am absolutely not one. Um, but you know, in some sense, like we've got a living population of people who seem to relate to their old books and stuff. Right. Um, and so they're interested in our data oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's. I've had a lot of these conversations and a lot of these exchanges over the years with folks, um, and one of the things that um, I'm aware of is that, you know, they're not really entirely sure what a lot of this stuff really practically meant in terms of someone's actual description of their consciousness. And there's a there's a good analogy that I use for this. Um, a number of years ago, I was researching the the self help movement. Before I started researching this, I was researching the self help movement because it just occurred to me that there are like a billion people out there consuming self-help materials. And in some sense, it was like the world's largest untapped laboratory of what might work Mm -hmm. the best. Um, And so I started a research project that inquired into that and and did that for a number of years. Um, One of the things that I ran across in that was uh, the self-help was sort of this, this movement within um, one part of the self-help movement that was the new thought movement was called the new thought movement back in the late 1800s early 1900s Uh, today we would call it like the power of thought movement or you know the um the sort of you know think things into reality Mm -hmm. kind of movement and uh that kind of stuff um so sort of forms a core of the self-help market a core of the new age market all of that and I ran across this lady's dissertation from a university in Pennsylvania, and she was a period historian. Her name is Beryl Sater, and she she eventually published it as a book called something like "Each Mind a Kingdom" or "Every Mind a Kingdom," something like that. Uh, but her dissertation, and it didn't. The book is is good, but the dissertation is, of course, better because it's not doesn't have to be smoothed over, right? Um, and so I was reading her dissertation, and the takeaway from the dissertation is essentially this: even though my takeaway, one of my main takeaways, even though we can go back and we can read a book from the New Thought Movement in the late 1800s or early 1900s, and it's written in English, and it's written by an American, and it's like 100 to 150 years old. Um, and we think to ourselves, as we're reading this, oh, I get this. Yeah, I understand this. This makes perfect sense. And out of that has evolved this entire sort of new age, self-help sub-genre around people who did exactly that. They went back and they read those materials, and then they modernized them and rewrote them for a contemporary audience, experimented around, played around, of their own anecdotes, you know, all that. What Beryl very clearly shows is that if you go back and read those books that are, again, like 100 to 150 years old you do not understand what these people are saying. That it is embedded in a socio-economic <laughs> historical context that is so completely different mm. from our modern reality mm. that although the words are technically understandable by us, we map our modern social context, on you know, our socio-economic <laughs> historical sort of placement onto it Um, And we just were not in the head of the person that was reading this thing 150 years ago. And so it's a a different book to them than it is to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really a profound moment for me. um, When... You know, she she basically picked the New Thought Movement because it was like embedded in women's rights and it was embedded in sort of the spiritual debates of the day of is spirit in matter or is it apart from matter? I mean, there's all this complex social stuff around it that she just thought as a period historian, right? Not as not from a science or a philosophical perspective or just as a period historian was fascinating and would make for an interesting dissertation. Um and because she viewed it through that historian lens and went and dug out all their correspondence and dug out all the newsletters that had long since been forgotten and dug all the historical context and the social context and all of that around it, it you know, it just, you just realize when you're reading this, holy crap, I thought I could understand that. It turns out I can't understand it at all. So um, imagine how much more difficult it is if it's something written hundreds or thousands of years ago that isn't in your native culture, isn't in your native language, maybe isn't even a living language, right? I mean, we can't understand this stuff from a hundred years ago for God's sakes. Right. And so that's what you get out of these Buddhist um, and, you know, Hindu and even Christian, um, uh, scholars is the sense of like you know we're not in their head. We really have no freaking idea what they were describing, um, and so I think there's a, there's cautionary tales and and using words like enlightenment and you know these other terms that sort of come from these traditions in that they are such massively contested mm-hmm. and debated words and there's like a thousand meanings for them in a sub 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 sub, sub sect. You know, an overall religious tradition, much less the sect right next door to that, much less the sect right next door to that one. Right. Um, And what we really did, I think, is we we took the the profound cultural inheritance that these people gave us, which was knowledge that there is something that can happen inside the brain that produces a very different and much more beneficial way of experiencing life. Um, And we're really able to take using modern scientific methods, the Mm -hmm. core of that, um, as it's relevant to us as modern humans, um, and then, you know, create systems that we're able to get at least most people who use them there. um, And I hope at some point a technological push button solution um, and really sort of strip it. Of all of those debates and confusions and superstitions, and you know everything else, and that's I mean, I,
0: you know I love I love to hear it put that way because mm-hmm. I think that's sort of where the same desire is where I've landed with my own exploration that I've talked about before, which is you know, you see the commonalities, and then similarly i've I've always I've never heard it, you know articulated exactly that way, but my struggle was always, okay this is also really old and even at a young age i felt very aware of like okay there's been hundreds of translations and like who knows what it meant at the time and and you know so i always had that layer over top of all of my study that got me to that same place of like okay but what's the core thing right like that we're all chasing and 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 happiness doesn't even say it Mm -hmm. because i feel like happiness gets you to this idea of like Mm -hmm. it's like a it's like a peak state um i think when you express it as fundamental well-being it's it feels like a a shift in even thinking about what you're chasing because it's it's not you know (laughs) always being in a state of the manifest joy you experience at the birth of your first child or whatever it's 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 a low-grade thing that like you know it it tends to you i think you know you mentioned uh like buddhist uh thought and stuff like that and you know it tends to mirror something closer to what I feel like they're talking about which is like it's more like once you attain it or once you get to that point just sort of like the anxiety falls away it's not this constant feeling like oh yeah all, all the time i'm just <laughs> stoked <laughs> like uh but it's like you know it's more like i just am actively not worried about a tiger you know attacking me even if that's not really what it, it's like that that baseline anxiety you know that that mm-hmm that might result in us saying, well, it's an existential dread, <laughs> you know, like, uh, sort of right. falls away. Um, right. But, uh, man, I, we're, we're, this is our, our favorite kind of conversation to have here where I get to say <laughs> we're out of time <laughs> oh and there's gosh, so many yeah. rabbit holes and, and, <laughs> you know, this is great. Thanks for, thanks for coming on to, uh, talk about all this stuff. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation so so if people want to uh keep following the rabbit holes we've got uh, uh, finderscourse.com non-symbolic.org and the book is called the finders Mm -hmm. right did i get all that yeah Uh,
1: ttconf.org is the transformative technology conference um and they can just generally search on transformative technology if they're interested in that kind of stuff um and if anybody thinks that they're experiencing this We have uh, a few hours of video up at Mm. ExplorersCourse.com that is um, what we think is the most Mm. important thing, things for people to know based on our research um, for people that are already experiencing this type of thing. You know, it's when you're in it, you don't necessarily, because you've had a reduction in your, in your chattering mind, um, you're not necessarily as self-reflective. As you know, you're not sitting around thinking about yourself all the time, um, and so you don't. You're not necessarily analyzing even sort of, you know, hmm. your current life, current state. Um, with the, you know, certainly you're not doing it to the neurotic degree that you once did, and as a result of that, you can you can just sort of never think about some of the bigger features of what it's like to experience this. And we've been able to extract those bigger features, of course, from researching a lot of these people, thousands of these people over the last 13 years. And I I think there's some really useful things for anyone that experiences this to just know if it and you know, many of them I'm sure will have dawned on them, but if there's just even one or two things that are these core things that haven't dawned on somebody yet. Um, And I meet people all the time that haven't had this stuff done on them. then that can be really nice too. So explorerscourse.com is sort of a resource. Is it to make the
2: three-part video series that's kind of the the initial that that summary set?
1: No, it's different. It's um, it's, it's you know, we have a separate experiment that you actually can't get to from explorerscourse.com. At least not as I'm talking about it. Maybe someday that'll change, and somebody could listen to this years from now or something, and that might not be true. Um, but then we have a, a separate experiment called the Explorers Course, which is an experiment in integrating this in like life integration, how it unfolds and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And as a function of that, uh, I, I put some of these core tenets into the first module of that research program and everybody just sort of universally responded that, that that's participated in that research, you know, and said, wow. you've got to make those available at a mass level cool. so that people can, you know, those would have made such a huge difference in my life if I could just could have watched those videos 10 years ago or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I just decided to throw up session zero, if you will, from the Explorers course experiment on that site. Cool.
2: That's awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to check that out. <laughs> awesome. Well,
0: yeah, yeah, thank you for doing well, that. Well, thanks for having me. This was and great. And thank you for joining us. Um, this, uh, this is. Uh, oh, I should say thank special thanks to our supporters as well, uh, especially if they've made it this far. But if you want to jump in and throw us as little as a buck uh, a month to help keep Zengineering going, that's support.zengineeringpodcast.com. Uh, thanks for hanging around for another Engineering Podcast. Uh, I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Jeffrey.